This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, I'm not an Emerson scholar. I'm not much of a scholar on anything, but especially not on Emerson. But I've always read him for pleasure and was always gripped by the fact that uh, Nietzsche admired Emerson. And uh, so this is a paper that knows a little bit more about Nietzsche than Emerson. And it follows, as it were, Nietzsche's track through our own Emerson. And the reference to Nietzsche's voluptuary is that Nietzsche uses this word with regard to Emerson. When you think of Emerson as a, as a Unitarian preacher, uh, voluptuary would not be the first word that might occur to you to describe it. I began preparing for this lecture by tracing Nietzsche's references to Emerson, first in his correspondence, then in his works. I began with some confidence, since I was familiar with the material, having examined it years ago, at least in a cursory way, but I ended this time in considerable befuddlement. I had planned to talk about Emerson's essays, Fate and Illusions, from the Conduct of Life, themes that promised a rich contrast to Nietzsche's thought. But the plunge into those references by Nietzsche to Emerson um, soon overwhelmed me. How rich they are and how varied, how difficult to categorize or even I uncovered so many surprises, so many things I had forgotten or never noticed, that my own fate and my own illusions came to the fore. Obviously, it would take months and hours of time to report on that work were I to do a thorough job of it. I discovered, for example, that Emerson was important not only for Nietzsche's decision to make Zarathustra a central character of his philosophy, but also for much of what Nietzsche Zarathustra himself had to say, and also failed to say. Let me pause over this well-known Zarathustran connection between Emerson and Nietzsche. If Zoroastrianism is at least an important part, if not the source, of that Manichaean moral tradition that counterposes the forces of good and evil, it surely seems strange that the thinker who wants to move beyond good and evil should take Zarathustra as his hero. In a que homo, Nietzsche is laconic about it, saying merely that he wishes to conjoin in the same spokesman the beginning and the end of a long, deleterious tradition. Yet we know that Nietzsche was reading Emerson's essay on character at the time he was working on sketches that he gave the title Midday and Eternity, Mittag und Ewigkeit. Emerson takes Zarathustra to be one of the eminent instances of character. He writes in a language nothing short of biblical or prophetic, quote, We require that a man should be so large and columnar in the landscape that it should deserve to be recorded that he arose, girded up his loins, and departed to such and such a place. The most credible pictures are those of majestic men who prevailed at their entrance and convinced the senses as happened to the Eastern Magian, who was sent to test the merits of Zertusht, or Zoroaster. When the Yunani sage arrived at Balkh, the Persians tell us, Gushtast appointed a day on which the Mobeds of every country should assemble, and a golden chair was placed for the Yunani sage. Then the beloved Yezdam, the prophet Zertusht, advanced into the midst of the assembly. Yunani sage, on seeing that chief, said, This form and this gate cannot lie, and nothing but truth can proceed from them. Unquote. Nietzsche, in his copy of Emerson's essays, underscores this passage and makes a number of marks in the margins of his copy, sort of a triple line. And in the margin, he writes the words, Das ist this. That's it. Das ist this. That's it indeed. Character is it for Nietzsche in every case. Whether it be Schopenhauer or the ancient Empedocles, what grips Nietzsche always and everywhere is not a system of ideas, but the magnetism of the character and the gate, if we can say that, the gate or the pace of the thinking 
that elaborates those ideas. Ad hominem, ad femina, not for Nietzsche a flaw in logic, but the fate of all genuine thinking. The character of Empedocles, which had so strong an impact already on Lucretius, dominates the plans in Nietzsche's notebooks for a drama, plans that later became precisely the plans for a drama involving Zarathustra. Emerson's name shows up precisely in the very late plans towards some sort of conclusion to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a conclusion that would involve Zarathustra's death and his legacy to those who survive him. You'll remember that in the book as it stands, Zarathustra fails to demonstrate his mortality. He fails to go down, as he likes to say, he fails to die. It is important that Zarathustra die, and that his death demonstrates his fidelity, fidelity to the earth, that his death be not bitter, but as Nietzsche writes, that it flow as the honey of his soul. At the very place where Nietzsche is sketching these plans, which never came to fruition, for Zarathustra's affirmative death, he enters the note, quote, gather passages on happiness, for example, Emerson. That little phrase occurs right in the middle of these plans to try to get Zarathustra to die. Gather passages on happiness, for example, from Emerson. Even if Nietzsche delivers himself of a few side hits at Emerson, the depth of his admiration and affirmation of Emerson's character run deeper than I realized. I want to do justice to that affirmation at the risk of losing my way among dozens of references illusions and shared themes. Among the themes, nature, power, freedom, and faith, I suspect that the one that will prove, prove most intriguing will be that of friendship, including Nietzsche's friendly affection for Emerson, and more generally, the trials and tribulations of friendship, as experienced by these two men who never met. In the case of Emerson, the eminent case will be the friendship with Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. In Nietzsche's case, it will be the friendship with Erwin Rohde, R-O-H-D-E. Not a name you would know unless you're a classicist. He wrote one of the most important texts um, on the Dionysian experience, published around 1900. If earlier on, still at a considerable distance from the material I had once cursorily visited, I felt that Emerson and Nietzsche were likely candidates for the oddest of odd couples. It soon became clear to me how profoundly they belonged together. It's difficult to conceive of anyone, at least in these United States, who could be a Nietzsche enthusiast without being an Emerson enthusiast. If Nietzschean genealogical critique and pessimism of strength seem incommensurable with Emersonian optimism, it's nonetheless the case that Nietzsche's devotion and dedication to Emerson endure throughout Nietzsche's career. There are very good reasons for this. It's not purely a matter of personal taste on Nietzsche's part. Rather, if I'm right, Emerson and Nietzsche are often thinking along the same lines and with the same radicality, the one apace with the other, as it were. To show this would be my proper task though I'm not sure I'm up to it. Perhaps the most famous of Nietzsche's notes on Emerson, written at the time when his own great thought, the eternal return of the same, overcame him, which is the very time when Zarathustra walks by in front of him, as he says, is the following note, again from the unpublished notebooks. Emerson, in the middle of the page, Emerson, and beneath, never have I felt so at home in a book so much in my own house. Meant are the essays, the first series of essays. I dare not praise this book. It stands too close to me. Allow me to spoil this confession, however, by adding a sour note or two. In a letter to Franz Overbeck, whose wife has also been struck by an affection for Emerson, Nietzsche says two things about our amazingly learned Emerson. The first, quote, Tell your dear wife that I feel Emerson to be a soul brother. The word soul here underscored several times. 
perhaps as a, a gently ironic reference to Emerson's oversoul. The second, in parentheses, but his mind is poorly educated. Close parentheses. Aber sein Geist ist schlecht gebildet. <coughs> the ultimate German insult. Emerson? Emerson's mind or spirit poorly formed, poorly educated. We are aghast. Because Nietzsche is writing to his formal compatriot and colleague at the University of Basel, we may assume that he is thinking of his days as a classical philologist, a very well-trained classical philologist, one whose influence on contemporary classical studies is uniformly denied and universally exhibited. Not a single classicist who will, who will admit to citing the tragedy. There's not a single classical philologist who isn't deeply influenced by the birth of tragedy. It's true enough, and Emerson would concede the point entirely, that Emerson's own relation to the classical texts was one of edification, not of philological precision and meticulosity, what the Germans call acribie. Indeed, the main point of his Divinity School address is that he wishes he could spare young men such an edifying education. Both Nietzsche and Emerson would accept Hegel's austere demand that philosophy never even wish to be edifying. <clears throat> Yet Nietzsche was not always such a snob about rigorous training in this or that science. Indeed, in We Philologists, as also in Second Untimely Meditation, to say nothing of his lecture series on the future of our educational institutions, he has a laugh at the assiduous bookworm and clearly wishes that the scholars of his own time could have more of Emerson in them. And let's not forget that Nietzsche's love of philosophy made him so suspect, so suspect, to his fellow philosopher bookworms that his first great work, The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music, occasioned his banishment from the Guild of Scientific Philologists. There's a larger point involved, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. In his lectures on Nietzsche, Heidegger remarks on the criticism one often hears concerning Nietzsche's reading of Kant, namely that Nietzsche relies too heavily on Kuhnhoff's handbook on Kant, and in general shows too little familiarity with Kant's own texts, especially the first critique. Heidegger replies to this criticism, to the hermeneutician's horror, that one can have what seems to be only a superficial contact with a great work and still grasp the essence of its problems and its themes. Again, we are aghast. Why do we struggle with our, our formulations? Why do we labor over precise translations and well-grounded interpretations if superficial contact suffices? Why go spelunking if a stroll down a country lane is enough? Why go deep sea diving if a flat stone skipping across a lake does just as well. No, surely Heidegger is wrong about Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is wrong about Emerson, and our labors here at the university are not in vain. Yet, awkwardly, there is another side. We know that no amount of scholarly labor guarantees insight. No amount of acribie guarantees a sense of the whole. No dissection of a particular tree tutelary genius of the forest. Are there not moments in Emerson when his contact with the classics, however slight his training, produces breathtaking thoughts? Consider his appreciation of Aeschylus's character Io in Prometheus Bound. She is so strange, as is Prometheus and the upstart Zeus of the play, she is so out of line with the rest of Aeschylus's work, especially the Oresteia, so much so that well-trained scholars today believe that the play Prometheus Bound is not by Aeschylus at all. I repeat, this poor beguiled priestess of Hera, Io, who is given horns by the goddess because of her husband's fondness for the girl, Io, this poor calf stung by gadflies, 
cantering across Europe to the Caucasus Mountains, then on down to Egypt. Emerson sees her differently. In the very first of his essays, History, he writes of the rudiments of all other living species that we find preserved in human beings. Quote, as Eo in Aeschylus, transformed into a cow, offends the imagination. But how changed when, as Isis in Egypt, she meets Jove, a woman with nothing of the metamorphosis left but the lunar horns as the splendid ornament of her brows. Such a difficult sentence. Let me just try to transliterate it, okay? Um, Eo, because of Hera's jealousy, is transformed into a cow. She's stunned by a gadfly so that she runs out of Greece to the Caucasus Mountains, down through the Arabian Peninsula into Egypt, uh, where she actually, touched by Zeus, founds all the races of Africa. So any African-American is interested in Eo as the great-grandmother all the African tribes. So it's an extraordinary story. This Eo transformed into a cow, as Emerson says, offends the imagination until we realize that by the time she gets to Egypt and is met by Zeus, who's quite prepared to found a new race with Eo's help, uh, he says the only part of, of her metamorphosis into a cow that's left are her horns. But he says her horns aren't like this, they're her eyebrows. So to test this, I, using the web as I so often do, <laughs> I brought up an image of Nefertiti. You remember the famous Nefertiti and studied her brows, which Emerson identifies as the horns of the cow. So next time you're looking at a cow out in the pasture, think about you, but with the horns transformed. So I have a little discourse here on eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> Think of this next time you are gazing on Nefertiti, hoping that no one can read your half-thoughts. Her eyebrows are but the refinements of Eo's horns, and Eo's horns always were those of the moon. Nietzsche loved this insight of Emerson so much that he copied it, along with many other passages from Emerson's essays, into one of his notebooks early in 1882. His summary lacks the grace and perhaps even the essence of Emerson's remark, however. Nietzsche writes, quote, to make for oneself from the residues of our animality one's costliest jewel, as with Isis nothing else than the lunar formed horns remains of her metamorphosis. What this note misses, of course, is Emerson's invocation of the brows. As though what could be of the essence are the eyebrows of a woman, whether unplucked or plucked entirely, and merely painted, so that only the brow of bone is left for beauty to shine through, whether that brow of bone be human or bovine. After all, it's all the overwhelming work of calcium. <laughs> the eyebrows just cover this little ridge of bone. Okay. And when you see the skull of a cow, uh, or, or of a goat, or of a hare, or of a dog, the humanity of the skull is best expressed by the brow. Okay. Or the brows. And somehow this is what Emerson sees. He sees in the horns of the cow of the world. And I'm sure that's what induced Nietzsche to, to at least jot the note down. Only Nefertiti seems to know, and her sculptor, Tutmosis. Oh, and Emerson. There's a second sour reference, though, to Emerson that Overbeck is to pass on to his wife. Nietzsche says that he's having a long essay of Emerson's translated into German, an essay that sheds much light on Emerson's development. It's an essay I confess I don't know, with a title something like, Nietzsche just gives a German title, so I have to sort of translate back into English, something like this, Historical Notes on Modes of Life and Literature in Massachusetts. Surely the, the oddest essay Nietzsche ever read. <laughs> Modes of Life and Literature in Scenic Massachusetts. 
Nietzsche then goes on to remark, quote, I cannot tell you how much I would give if, after the fact, I could arrange matters so that such a splendid grand nature as Emerson's, so rich in soul and in spirit, could be made to pass through a strictly disciplined schooling, a truly scientific cultivation. As it is in Emerson, we have lost a philosopher. Two things are odd about this, it seems to me. The first is that it lays a charge against Emerson that Vilamovitz and other philologists lay against Nietzsche himself. And it is certainly true that <coughs> Nietzsche's education, especially in the natural sciences, was that of an autodidact. The second is that Emerson would once again concede the point utterly and remark, as he does dozens of times in his journals and essays, that his training, after all, took place in a country that is famous for its superficialness. That's a quotation, not from Nietzsche, from Emerson. Again, the question to raise is whether we can ever be certain that our meticulosity produces learning that is more than a knack or a know-how. In our own highly corporatized and technicized universities, ugly language here reflecting a reality that is itself not very pretty. That is, in these institutions in which the humanities appear to be suffering their death throes, the question remains relevant. One more sour note, inasmuch as it's the most revealing. It's earlier than the other two, from a letter to Karl von Gerstorff, dated May 26, 1876. And it involves Nietzsche's criticism of what I take to be the newly translated second series of essays, which Nietzsche adjudges less rich and more repetitive than the first. And ultimately, he adds, almost as an afterthought, he, Emerson, is in my view too much in love with life, gar zu sehr in das Leben verliebt. Unquote. After this sally appears a long dash, or hiatus, what in German we call a Gedankenstrich, which means a dash or a brush stroke of thought. Gedankenstrich gives you space to think. That's, that's what it's there for. And what a brush stroke. For Nietzsche, early and late, identifies himself as the philosopher who is in love with life. The one who defends life against all the calumnies of the metaphysical moral tradition. As he is a lover of fate, amor fati being his requirement for all who think, so does he paint himself as one who is too much in love with life. Even when Nietzsche chastises Emerson, it is always a note to self. That's what I found so interesting. Everything that you could take to be a kind of criticism of Emerson is the very same criticism <clears throat> that his, Nietzsche's enemies, lay against Nietzsche. Especially aspect of loving life too much. What could that mean to a Nietzschean, to a Dionysian, to a Nietzschean Dionysian? What could that possibly mean? Love, however, as you may have observed, is dangerous. To court is to court danger. At the end of his third untimely meditation, a little read but quite revealing essay, Schopenhauer as educator, Nietzsche cites Emerson in this respect. In general, one can say that Nietzsche's relation to Schopenhauer mirrors quite perfectly his relation to Emerson. On many points of doctrine or idea, Nietzsche rejects them both. And yet he admires the character of each to the point where these rejections don't really count for much. Just a side remark, but I was reminded of it recently. He once wrote in a letter to Erwin Roda, he says, well, if I think that my ideas, which I believe in very strongly, will offend someone, he says, I'm ready to drop them. No idea is ever worth defending to the point where it could possibly be of offense to someone. We're just not used to Nietzsche being that squishy. <laughs> and apparently he practiced this. If he, if he felt a book of his would offend someone, he, he always sent his books to Professor Borchardt, who was a very distinguished reader, with sort of apology, saying, if you don't like the first couple of pages, just, you know, Use it as a doorstop. Uh, Nietzsche's real concern is character, uh, the character that 
might produce a thing. It's not with some system of ideas. In his third untimely, Nietzsche is criticizing the academic philosophy of his times, which hides its timorousness or cowardice behind much brave technical talk. What should philosophy be? asks Nietzsche. And then he writes, let an American tell you. Let an American tell you. <laughs> Realizing how insulting this will be to his readership. Want to know what philosophy is? Let an American tell He then cites Emerson's circles as follows. Cited by Nietzsche at the end of Schopenhauer's Educator. Beware when the great God lets loose a thinker on this planet. Then all things are at risk. It is as when a conflagration has broken out in a city, and no man knows what is safe or where it will end. There is not a piece of science, but its flank may be turned tomorrow. There is not any literary reputation, not the so-called eternal names of fame that may not be revised and condemned. The, thing, the things which are dear to men at this hour are, are so on account of the ideas which have emerged on their mental horizon and which cause the present order of things as a tree bears its apples. A new degree of culture would instantly revolutionize the entire system of human pursuits. That's again, Emerson. Nietzsche italicizes that last sentence. As he himself wrote in an early essay, contrasting the culture of Greek antiquity with that of his contemporary Germany, quote, go get yourselves a culture. Only then will you experience what philosophy wants to do and can do. Go get yourself a culture. Such a culture would have to develop an entirely new relationship with nature. Early on in his life as a student of philology and the classics, Nietzsche shared with Karl von Gerstorff his love of Emerson as a thinker of nature. In a letter to Gerstorff, April 7, 1866, Nietzsche is 22 years old at the time, he writes, Dear friend, from time to time come hours of tranquil observation, when one stands above one's life in a mixture of joy and mourning. Hours like those lovely summer days that settle down on the hills with all their breadth and contentedness, as Emerson so marvelously describes them." Unquote. He's referring, I think, to the opening paragraphs of Nature in the second series of essays, not the big essay, the second, second series of essays. And here's Emerson. There are days which occur in this climate, at almost any season of the year, <clears throat> wherein the world achieves its perfection, when the air, the heavenly bodies, and the earth make a harmony, as if nature would indulge her offspring, when everything that has life gives signs of satisfaction, and the cattle that lie on the ground seem to have great and tranquil thoughts. These halcyons may be looked for with a little more assurance in that pure October weather, which we distinguish by the name of Indian summer. The day, immeasurably long, sleeps over the broad hills and warm, wide fields. To have lived through all its sunny hours seems longevity enough. Those tranquil and ruminative cows will have reappeared, of course, in Nietzsche's second untimely meditation on the use and disadvantage of history for life. Nietzsche, the good European, pays the kind of attention that Emerson pays to nature. Whether in the Madaran Valley or the Fextal of Sils Maria or in the Dolomites, Nietzsche is sensitive to, hypersensitive to, the gifts given by such sites to his thinking. Neither Emerson nor Nietzsche think sub specie eternitatis. They don't think under the sign of eternity. And they don't think universally, they think locally. Each thinks in place and thinks about places. One of the anecdotes recorded by Emerson in his essay on history, copied by Nietzsche into his notebooks, is that of a woman who remarked as she and Emerson entered a forest that she felt, quote, that the woods always seemed to her to wait as if the genii, 
who inhabited them suspended their deeds until the wayfarer had passed onward. When you enter a forest, you're interrupting something, and the forest will pause in its business and wait till you exit, and then carry on with what it does. This reminds us of Thoreau's feeling of awe and mourning when a tree is cut down. His expectation that a lumberjack invoke the spirit of the wood and beg forgiveness for the felling of the tree. <coughs> what would a serious confrontation between Nietzsche and Emerson with regard to nature look like? It would focus on the role of power in all becoming, and what Nietzsche calls mysteriously and perhaps deceptively zur Macht. That confrontation would force us to face, face up to what seems to be a vast distance between Emerson and Nietzsche. Whereas Emerson, in experience, fate, and illusions, seems to find a space for human freedom, such that another force than power always comes into play, Nietzsche insists in that famous note of his that all becoming is will to power and nothing besides. Emerson recognizes the play of forces in nature, and he feels both awe and fright before it. Yet Nietzsche confesses himself mystified by Emerson's confidence that one can evade that play of forces and find some overarching force of freedom. All that is left of freedom for Nietzsche is his admission that eternity is repeatedly decided in the gateway called the moment, the Augenblick, the glance eye. Decided once and for all, but in each moment. One more time, once and for all. That's the paradox, surely, of thinking the eternal return is the same. Decided once and for all in each moment of eternity. And so, once and for all, one more time. <coughs> Let me turn to Emerson's Illusions, the essay called Illusions. <coughs> For here Nietzsche and Emerson part ways, only to return to one another in a kind of difficult friendship. If we were to trace the role of power in Emerson's essays on nature, experience, and faith, would we not have to confront illusions? For even though Emerson's understanding of power appears to be as relentless as Nietzsche's is, there is to repeat always something that enables him to escape its full impact. If the ways of providence are a little rude, as Emerson concedes, one of Emerson's great understanding, the ways of providence, he writes, are a little rude. There is yet, in the overarching plan, a bit of courtesy that is granted the human being. No such courtesy graces Nietzsche's universe. And so the gap between the two thinkers appears to be unbridgeable. And yet, in this brief essay from The Conduct of Life, Emerson shows that he is as sensitive to the power of illusion as Nietzsche is. The poem that precedes his essay tells us that, quote, no anchorage is, unquote. Strange line. No anchorage is. And in a later line of the same poem, that both law and world are an endless imbroglio. Endless imbroglio. His harsh insight rules until, at the turning point of the essay, Emerson writes, quote, In this kingdom of illusions, we grope eagerly for stays and foundations. There is none but a strict and faithful dealing at home, and a severe barring out of all duplicity or illusion there. <coughs> Unquote. At home? Where else does illusion rule but at home? Barring out, what greater illusion could there be than that some power beyond power enables us to extirpate illusion? How can Emerson fail to see in this feint of his the most pathetic of eager gropings? Illusions have hallucinatory power. Recall the mass murderer Mosbrugger at his trial in Robert Musil's Der Mann ohne Eigenschaften qualities. This is from the serial murderer's trial. The forensic psychiatrists demonstrate that Mosbrugger 
suffers from the most severe hallucinations. Mosbrugger himself, <coughs> hearing this, hearing them say this, agrees with them. But, as Musil tells us, he, Mosbrugger, knows that neither the psychiatrist nor the attorneys are as good at hallucinating as he is. They are simply not as perspicuous as he at hearing those voices and describing those phantoms that threaten him. It's a brilliant chapter. You realize, of course I'm hallucinating, but you can't hear my voices. You have no idea of what visions I'm seeing. I'm better at it than you are. So he agrees with the state's attorney that he's a very dangerous man, that this is a talent. So this would be Nietzsche's reply to, let's see if this is Nietzsche's reply to, to Emerson. So it is surely with illusions. And Nietzsche, who taught Musil this lesson, would have insisted on teaching Emerson the same lesson. Illusions are always at home. There is no barring out of illusions. Yet there's another side to Nietzsche's understanding of the power of illusion. True, he identifies himself as one who strips away the masks of illusion and delusion. He is the relentless opponent of masquerade. At a very reflective moment in his genealogy of morals, however, Nietzsche writes the following, quote, If we measure our entire modern being upon the standard of the ancient Greeks, measure it at least where it is not debility but power and consciousness of power, it turns out to be sheer hubris and godlessness. Hubris is today our entire attitude toward nature, our rape of nature with the help of machines and the astonishingly inventiveness of our technicians and engineers. Hubris is our attitude toward God. Hubris is our attitude toward ourselves, for we experiment with ourselves in a way that we would never permit with any animal. As we contentedly slit open our souls and gaze with curiosity upon our vivisection. What does the health of the soul mean to us? We violate ourselves, there's no doubt about it. We nutcrackers of the soul, we questioning and questionable ones, as though life were nothing other than nutcracking. Precisely for that reason, we must necessarily grow more questionable every day. We must become more worthy of question. And precisely for that reason, we must also become more worthy to live. As though life were nothing other than nutcracking. The genealogist of morals hopes to become worthier in questioning and so to become himself or herself more questionable. And thus Nietzsche writes in the interrogative, worthier to live? Nietzsche sets ellipsis points both before and after the phrase to live and after it he places a question, room, question mark. An ellipsis, you'll remember, is a shortfall. The inference is that life requires something more than stripping away illusions. And even if you're the greatest genealogist in the world and, and become the most powerful, cynical interpreter for all your friends, there may be something about life that you're missing. That's the point. Life may involve more than stripping away illusions. There's a remarkable dramatic passage in the book that precedes the genealogy, namely Beyond Good and Evil. And I suspect it is a, pas a passage that Emerson would have loved. So in the first, Nietzsche poses the danger of what it means to be a genealogist. Here he writes something same direction, but positive. This is uh, in section 278 on Good and Evil. Wanderer, who are you? I see you going your way without scorn, without love, with inscrutable eyes. Down you go like a plumb bob, moist and mournful returning dissatisfied from every depth to the light of day. What was the plumb bob looking for down there? With a breast that does not sigh, with a lip that conceals its nausea, with a hand that only wishes to grasp slowly, who are you? What are you doing? Rest yourself out here. This place is hospitable to everyone. Recreate yourself. And whoever you are, what would be your pleasure now? What would serve your recreation? 
Only name it. What I have, I offer you. Paragraph break and the plumbob replies. For recreation. Recreation? Oh, you curious fellow. What are you saying? But give me, I pray. Give me. What? What? Say it. One more mask. A second mask. So the genealogist himself asks for a second chance to hide, to conceal, to be swallowed up in illusion. Recall Emerson's laconic words in illusions. Quote, life is an ecstasy. The world rolls. The din of life is never hushed. In London, in Paris, in Boston, in San Francisco, the carnival, the masquerade is at its heights. We rightly accuse the critic who destroys too many illusions. That sentence is a Nietzschean sentence. We rightly criticize the critic who destroys too many illusions. What terrible questions we are learning to ask, Emerson continues. Questions that obliterate from men's minds all vestige of theism and beliefs which they and their fathers held and were framed upon. What is left to us? Perhaps, says Emerson, we can learn to rank our phantasms, beginning with coarse masks and rising to the most subtle and beautiful. Then comes the most laconic, the most cryptic of all his sentences. Quote, life will show you masks that are worth all your carnivals. I suspect it's impossible to figure out what that means, but it's one of the greatest sentences in Emerson. Life will show you masks that are worth all your carnivals. So illusions, the essay illusions, is not just about the banishing of illusions and barring them from home about knowing when to stop stripping away masks. And if I'm right, this is the very meaning of Dionysos in Nietzsche's philosophy early in life. As a young man, Nietzsche was entranced by the image of the Menads, the devotees of Dionysos, who run barefoot through the winter snows of Delphi seeking their god. At some point, he says, they collapse in exhaustion and they fall asleep. In their sleep, they dream. What they dream, he says, becomes Greek tragedy. All his philological science was dedicated to the pursuit of those dreams. As odd as it may sound, Emerson is no less convinced of the importance of dreams than Nietzsche is. If a menadic Emerson, an Emerson who is a voluptuary of Dionysos, seems to us preposterous, is the Nietzschean genealogist any less likely a candidate. Nietzsche was strongly influenced during his younger years, during which he was occupied with Greek tragedy, by a book by Jacob Bernays on catharsis. Bernays, a medical doctor, was famous for having an almost positivist, mechanistic view of the phenomenon of catharsis. But in the fourth chapter of his book, he says something astonishing about the role of music and dance in tragedy. He says that music and dance enable us to confront the otherwise concealed laws of the universe. Imagine a, an astrophysicist today, or a medical doctor, speaking of dance in this way, as though quasars, cancers, and cures could show themselves to a dancer. When I was absurdly young, our larger family, uncles, aunts, cousins, would gather on special evenings to play charades. We did not have the comfort of computers and iPhones, which would have enabled us to play in perfect isolation from one another. <laughs> our parents, uncles, and aunts, teaming up against us younger ones, had the irritating habit of remembering song titles from their youth, which we were then required to perform. No younger person could act out such absurd titles. And in our frustration, we declared that our elders were cheating, merely making stuff up. Whereupon, they would burst into song and sing the entire wretched ditty through with gusto, while the young ones held our ears, rolled on the ground, and begged, stop, please stop. 
To see our parents as voluptuaries of music and dance, no, it was too much. They seemed so happy. <laughs> the two song titles I remember best were I Won't Dance, Don't Ask Me, and the second one, When Francis Dances With Me, Golly Gee. <laughs> I remember succeeding by my peerless acting to get my team to understand when Frankus Dankus with me, phonetically. But that's as close as they got. I Won't Dance, Don't Ask Me, sung at a frantic pace, is the song of the Nietzschean genealogist of metaphysics and morals. I Won't Dance, Don't Ask Me. The more life-affirming song, perhaps the more Emersonian song, is when Francis, spelled with either an I or an E at the end, what matter, dances with me, they seemed so happy. The most extensive published note on Emerson comes very much at the end of Nietzsche's active life, in Goethe's Demerung, Twilight of the Idols. Here Nietzsche compares Emerson with Carlyle, much to Emerson's credit. We can ignore the critique of Carlyle, noting only that it matches Emerson's own criticisms of Carlyle, of which Nietzsche was unaware. Positively, however, what Nietzsche so admires in Emerson is that he is so much more enlightened, more far-ranging, so much more multifaceted, so much subtler, affinierter, refined, literally, than his English confrere. Above all, as Nietzsche says, Emerson is so much happier than Carlyle, blessed as he is by good fortune. Emerson ist glücklicher. It seems to such an odd thing. You're giving a criticism of a past philosopher and you say, you say he's more interesting than that philosopher because he's happier. You and I would get laughed right out of the exam room. Yes, aber glücklicher. Na ja, so. Emerson, quite literally, is a man of taste. Such a person, Nietzsche writes, instinctually feeds on ambrosia alone, disdaining whatever cannot be digested in things. Emerson has good digestion. He feels good. He's happy. He's a man of taste. If Carlyle complains, as he does, that Emerson does not give us something we can sink our teeth into, that complaint, while justified, does no damage to Emerson. Nietzsche, quote, Emerson has that beneficent cheerfulness that is rich in spirit and that knocks the wind out of all earnestness. He doesn't know how old he is, nor how young he is yet to become. He could say of himself what Lope de Vega says, Yo me sucedo mi mismo. I'm my own successor, or I succeed upon myself. His spirit always finds grounds to be satisfied, grounds even for gratitude. And from time to time, he touches on the cheerful transcendence, this is still Nietzsche, he touches on the cheerful transcendence of that good man who returned from a lover's tryst, tamquam re benigesta, offering nonetheless a positive report. Ut decent vires, as he gratefully said, tamen est laudanda voluptas. Nietzsche replaces Ovid's word voluntas, will, with voluptas, voluptuosity, so that we might translate roughly in this way. <coughs> Quote, even if one's forces should fail, voluptuosity is still to be praised. It's a long and impossible joke the way I'm telling it, but it's basically this. It's the guy returns from a party and things haven't gone well, but he says to his friends, even if the forces fail, voluptuosity is great and you have to praise it. So even if Emerson doesn't have teeth, critical teeth that he sinks into issues. He has a, way of, has a way of bouncing back, so to speak. He has a way of not being crushed, uh, of preserving happiness. A Lacanian would translate Ovid less generously as follows. The price of jouissance is too high, so who can be happy? <laughs> Emerson, not as virile, as the Carlylean hero, but as Nietzsche's chastened voluptuary. That's where my title comes from, I think. 
chastened voluptuary. And Emerson with garlands of ivy and periwinkle in its hair, the Cadmus and Tiresias of his age. The sage of Concord would, might, would certainly turn red, would certainly cry, I won't dance, don't ask me. However, as Nietzsche himself would say, Emerson does dance with the pen. A man's forces can, after all, regroup. Why not a little faith? Why not, meanwhile, gather a few passages on happiness? And who else besides Emerson could alter in a fundamental way Nietzsche's metaphysics? Not will to power, but pleasure to power. I don't know of another instance in Nietzsche's text where will gets crossed out and pleasure is put in its place. There's no crossing out of voluntas and replacing it with voluptas. So my, my response to that is, believe it or not, in my margins, golly gee. <laughs> golly gee in terms of will to power, but will to pleasure. Yet music and dance are not all there is to illusions. In a letter Nietzsche sent at the moment of the gravest crisis in his mental life to the Burkhardt, a letter that caused Burkhardt to ask Overbeck to travel down to Turin to bring their friend back home to the Basel Psychiatric Clinic, Nietzsche writes, quote, all the names of history, I am. Our signatures to his last letters, letters from the crucified, letters signed by a condemned murderer who was reported in the tabloids of the time, a kind of Mosebrugger. One of the thoughts in Emerson's history that Nietzsche copied into his notebooks was this, I want to live through all of history in my own person and to make all its power and violence my own. That's Emerson. To be sure, Emerson's expansiveness, like Whitman's I Contain Multitudes, makes us nervous. We are so much more guarded. We form a tight pack. <coughs> and the importance of friendship for both Nietzsche and Emerson has to do with this need they feel to pass through many others and invite many others to pass through them. Another note from history that Nietzsche jots down in his notebook note that must have impressed Gilles Deleuze, one of the proponents of mental nomadism in our time, is the following, quote, the intellectual nomadism is the faculty of objectiveness, or of eyes which everywhere feed themselves. Every man, everything is a prize, a study, a property, and this love smooths my brow, unquote. If this seems to run counter to the exhortations of self-reliance for which Emerson is famous, Nietzsche jots down those two most famous Emersonian passages that encourage belief in one's own thought as the secret of the genius and the unsuspected discovery that every work of genius contains thoughts that we ourselves once spurned. This, I think, was the passage from Emerson that Nietzsche loved best. Emerson writes, at some point in our lives, we recognize that genius is the return to us of thoughts that we once had, but we didn't think they were very good, so we put them aside. But they come back to us from Goethe or from Socrates or from whoever, and they appear to us great. And he says, that's genius. They're the things you didn't have the courage to retain for yourself, but they will come back to you. Nietzsche did not have the advantage of having at his disposal Emerson's letters and his journals. There, it seems to me, Nietzsche is closer to Emerson than he could have imagined. In a note from the autumn of 1880, Nietzsche writes, quote, emphasize friendship more greatly, nota bene Emerson. The note doesn't go on, that's, that's the entire note. The capacity for friendship is highly developed in each of these men. But so also is a sense of how rare and how difficult friendship in every case is. It isn't that they reject Aristotle's friendship of equals as the ideal. It's merely that each believes that he must pass through a series of others in order to establish something like a self in the first place. This implies that every friendship also exposes differences and limitations. 
flaws and peccadilloes, enigmas and irritations, both abroad and at home. One such friendship for each of our two heroes may serve as an example. Emerson's with Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, and Nietzsche's with Erwin Rode, the gifted author of the classic work, Suchet. If we were to seek a title for a chapter on Emerson's friendship with Thoreau, we might call it, quote, taking the arm of an elm tree, unquote. In his eulogy of Thoreau, Emerson writes the following. There was somewhat military in his nature not to be subdued, always manly and evil, but rarely tender, as if he did not feel himself except in opposition. He wanted a fallacy to expose, a blunder to pillory. I may say required a little sense of victory, a little roll of the drum to call his powers to full exercise. It cost him nothing to say no. Indeed, he found it much easier than to say yes. It seemed as if his first instinct on hearing a proposition was to controvert it. This habit, of course, is a little chilling to the social affections. I love Henry, said one of his friends, but I cannot like him. And as for taking his arm, I should as soon think of taking the arm of an elm tree. In his journals, Emerson is more candid. It's not some friend who adds that remark about the arm of the elm tree, but Emerson himself. In his published essay, he tries to blame it on somebody else. <laughs> and this man who loved Thoreau, loved Thoreau, they were deep, deep friends, Thoreau's greatest and deepest friend. Robert Louis Stevenson, altering the image, remarks somewhere that it is no accident that Thoreau's cultivated successful relationships with fish. <laughs> That's all that Stevenson says about him. He was great with fish. <laughs> Emerson's journals, <clears throat> we get a sense of both a companionable and an abrasive Thoreau, but also an Emerson for whom friendship is a struggle. He often complains, especially after a stroll with Margaret Fuller, about his own, Emerson's own, incapacity to give himself over to friendship, to shake off the reserve, to open himself a bit more. Yet nothing is more important to him than this capacity for openness. Quote, I confess to an extreme tenderness of nature on this point. It is clear that the tenderness is that of a wound or a sore spot. He confesses that friendship is almost dangerous to him. Quote, a new person is to me always a great event and hinders me from sleep. And strikingly, this, friendship, like the immortality of the soul, is too good to be believed. The goodness consists in tenderness, which for Emerson is of the essence. No entry to the oversoul without it. And yet, as he writes, better be a nettle in the side of your friend than his echo. Unquote. What shall we say of the tenderness of stinging nettles? No doubt Emerson is thinking about Thoreau here, and Nietzsche, who could have written, and does in fact write these things, would be thinking about Rhoda. In 1843, Emerson enters into this into his journal, quote, Henry Thoreau sends me a paper with the old fault of unlimited contradiction. The trick of his rhetoric is soon learned. It consists in substituting for the obvious word and thought its diametrical antagonist. It makes me nervous and wretched to read it with all its merits. Four years later, in 1847, Thoreau sometimes appears only as a gendarme, good to knock down a cockney with, but without that power to cheer and establish, which makes the value of a friend. And a year later, I spoke of friendship, but my friends and I are fishes in our habits. Fishes, shades of Stevenson. By 1856, Emerson is full of exasperation as far as Thoreau is concerned. Quote, always some weary, captious paradox to fight you with, the time and the temper wasted. That same year, with equal exasperation, quote, it is curious that Thoreau goes to a house to say with little preface what he has just read or observed, delivers it in lump, 
is quite inattentive to any comment or thought which any of the company offer on the matter, nay, is merely interrupted by it, and when he has finished his report, departs with precipitation. Then the next year, 1857, quote, Henry avoids commonplace and talks birch bark to all comers, reduces them all to the same insignificance. Birch bark, you'll remember, is noted for its astringency. Birch twig, when multiplied, is prized for a broom or a switch. It is seldom applied for purposes of tenderness. <laughs> Nietzsche admired Emerson's insight that when something or someone gets under my skin, the epidermis in question is always mine. The power men possess to annoy me, I give them by my weak curiosity. If Thoreau irritates me with his excessive Protestantism, that excess probably is my own and works its effects on me without help from Emerson. If, as we shall see, Rhoda's excessive devotion to Wagner is really too much for any truly critical music lover, it may be that my own devotion to Wagner still rules my life, especially after the Meister's death. Perhaps Wagner is incorporated in me as a mourned object. It may well be that friendship is the site, the topos, indeed the bedrock, that Nietzsche calls the granite of our spiritual fate. It may be that on this site, the site of friendship, our ecstasies hit rock bottom. Perhaps on this site occurs our battle with fate, for fate is, is above all, for both Emerson and Nietzsche, a struggle, not a fact. Nietzsche copies into his notebook this from Self-Reliance. Our housekeeping is mendicant, our arts, our occupations, our marriages, our religion we have not chosen, but society has chosen for us. We are parlor soldiers, the rugged battle of fate where strength is born, we shun. Nietzsche italicizes the words Stürmischen Kampf mit dem Schicksal, stormy struggle with destiny perhaps in order to stress the tragic character of the struggle. That tragic character, Schelling defined in his 10th letter as the fact that the tragic hero's freedom is always in the imperfect tense. Of necessity, the hero goes down, and as he or she goes down, we hear the cry, I was free. Schelling's defense of freedom in the human condition. You will go down, you must go down, and as you go down, you say, I was free. Freedom is essentially a simple past. What has this to do with friendship? Just about finished. Perhaps this. Aristotle says that the plots of the best tragedies, those of Sophocles, Aeschylus, and even Euripides, involve only a few famous houses in Greece, families in Greece. Namely, those houses in which philia, love, friendship, tenderness, has gone missing or has grown monstrous. We can afford to be more succinct with the case of Nietzsche and Rhoda. We find in both Rhoda and Nietzsche the kind of astringency that Emerson identifies in Thoreau. Student friends and allies in their early years, they were the most gifted and the most radical and independent of Ritchell's students. Both became devotees of the music of the future, but they quarreled when Nietzsche's distance from Wagner became a real split. Rhoda remained the faithful Wagnerian, felt, <clears throat> with some justice, that his friend Nietzsche was in impossible competition with the genius of Wagner. The distance between the two friends became unbridgeable. Their exchange of letters provides painful testimony concerning the growing alienation. That alienation produces several of Nietzsche's most beautiful and most painful passages on friendship. And sensing that Emerson would have loved and understood them, I present just one of them here without commentary by way of conclusion. The passage concerns erstwhile friends who meanwhile have become enemies, but who, seen in the perspective of the stars, remain friends. Gay Science number 279. And the title is Astral Friendship, Sternenfreundschaft. 
We were friends, and we became estranged. But that was right, and we don't want to hide it or obfuscate it, as though we had to be ashamed of it. We are two ships, each with its own destination and its own charted course. Our courses may cross, and we can host a gam together, as the two of us did. At that time, our good ships lay at anchor so peacefully in the same harbor and under the same sun that it seemed they had reached their goal and their goal was one and, one and the same. But then the all-powerful dominion of our tasks drove us apart again to different seas and different streams of sunlight. Perhaps we will see one another again, but we won't recognize one another. The different seas and suns will have changed us. That we had to be estranged from one another is the law that rules over us. On account of it, we ought to become more estimable to ourselves. On account of it, the thought of our former friendship ought to become more holy. Probably there is a vast invisible curve and astral orbit that encompasses our, encompasses our very different routes and destinations as though these last were but tiny stretches of the way. Let us elevate ourselves to this thought. Yet our life is too short and our vision too weak to allow us to have been more, to have been friends in the sense defined by that sublime possibility. And so we will want to believe in our astral friendship, even if on earth we had to become enemies to one another. Both Emerson and Nietzsche might reply to this very sad note by altering a famous exclamation that Diogenes Laertes attributes to Aristotle. Oh, my friend, there is no enemy. 